praise of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Today is Thursday, May the 20th, and we are getting close to Pentecost, but still, we are still in the Easter season, knowing our Lord has risen. He has risen indeed. And in that hope, we gather this next hour around the gift of the inspired and true Word of God and the Word made flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ, who shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome him. His light shines on us today from 1 Kings chapter 19. This is a text that is actually in our lectionary, something I've preached on before, but it's important for us to know the context. Right before this, we see the Lord Yahweh be victorious over the Asherah, over Baal, over the drought that ended for uh, for three and a half years. And here we are, we know the Lord was, his hand was upon the Lord, excuse me. The Lord's hand was upon Elijah. Everything sounds like gravy train with biscuit wheels, I've heard it said before. But what happens next? You'll find out today. The gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Thank you for thank you to our friends from Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information. lhfmissions.org. To help us be strengthened by God's word this morning, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Stephen Tice, vacancy pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri. Pastor Tice, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Well, thank you, sir. It's good to be with you uh, via this electronic connection. <laughs> each day, each time, we we're always uh, we're always joyful when we're able to have you on, Pastor Tice, because sometimes the connections aren't so well because you serve in all these remote areas. So, <laughs> how are things going in New Wells and your own family? Well, uh, things in New Wells are going uh, fairly well. I, I, my wife and I were last there on Sunday. Uh, we have been blessed to be able to travel to New Jersey. We are visiting with my son and daughter-in-law and their three children. We have not seen them since January of 2020 when we were here for the baptism of their youngest daughter, who is now walking and talking. Wow, what a joy that is. So are you currently in New Jersey? Yes, sir. I'm sitting in Jersey City, New Jersey. Good for you. Good for you. Wow. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, you know, it's always a joy to be with your family and a little time away as well. So, Pastor, um, we are in 1 Kings chapter 19, and this is a unique Mm -hmm. chapter. I'm looking forward to your insights. But, you know, well, let me take a step back as we search the scriptures. Can you begin us in prayer? Absolutely. We'll do that right now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, you bring us into your family through the gift of the Holy Spirit, coming to us through water and the Word, or for those who may not have the opportunity to be baptized first, the Word comes and the Spirit works directly through the Word that is proclaimed, that is heard, the the Word that brings faith. We thank you for the gift of faith and life that rests in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that rested on Elijah and Elisha as you call them to walk in your way and be your servants. We rejoice that we have received this call to walk in the path of your word. Bless our study of it together today. Open our eyes to see again the light of truth that you shine on us constantly. We thank you for the peace that comes from Christ's death, resurrection, and return to be seated at the right hand of the Father. As we wait for him to come again, we rejoice in the chance 
to enjoy this creation that you have placed us in until the new creation comes and we are never separated from you or loved ones again. All these things we ask in the name of Jesus, the the Savior who came for us and for all people, that we might proclaim him, the life of the world, in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Reminder to our listeners, if you have any questions as we study 1 Kings chapter 19, drop us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Pastor Tice, now we can get to 1 Kings chapter 19, and it is a, it's a, a, a wonderful ride that we're on with Ahab, with mm-hmm. Elijah, droughts, and Baal, and Asherah, and, well, some destruction. Everything we can imagine has come to this point. What kind of introductory thoughts do you have to help us out this morning? Well, I, I think uh, we, we look at and recognize a couple of things in the life of Elijah, and, and when we say Elijah, we have to jump to uh, the very end of the chapter and mention Elisha as well, because God is, God is Yahweh, God is salvation. And then, of course, in Yeshua, uh, we have Yahweh as our salvation. We find rescue from God. And in this mm-hmm. section, we see that God is rescuing in a way that Elijah wasn't quite able to, I'm going to use the word, wrap his mind around because his mind got distracted by the world he lived in. And Jesus cautions and reminds his disciples that you and I will be in the world, but not of the world, but we're still in it. And so as we do that, we look at the Word of God, and we look at the people of God, and see that, as as we find in, in the, the words of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. And as Hebrews reminds us, Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sinning. And so he sympathizes with us. Whatever temptation Elijah went through, Jesus went through. Mm. Whatever temptation you and I go through, Jesus went through. And this is, you know, it's a statement in Scripture that's there. But until we pull it back to today and the reality that, you know, Jesus was separated from his family and loved ones. Uh, he was on the cross dying, and they were physically there, and none could help him. We have people today who are separated from family and loved ones going through medical problems. Sometimes it's connected to a, a COVID infection. Sometimes it's another medical problem. And, and we look to medicine and technology to help, and it certainly does because of the way God ordered creation. But it can't solve the problem of death. Only Jesus can do that. But he also solves that problem specifically for Elijah, who is under the threat of death. And God's solution for Elijah is a little bit more dramatic than you and I have been promised. But it's proof <laughs> that God can solve the problem. That is a wonderful um, overview as we look at today that God is a rescuing God and that he comes in ways we don't always expect. But then, you know, he, he comes in the ways that we do expect, that he's told us very clearly yeah. in Scripture. Um so let's read the first four verses, and I want to talk a little bit about, at first, when we hear this on our ears and we envision it in our, in our minds, you're kind of like, wait a second here. What? What is Elijah doing exactly? So let's read verse, verses one through four and reflect. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of the one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, 
And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under the broom tree. And there he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So when you, when you hear this, it kind of rings a little bit strange in our ears because of what we just read in chapter 18. Describe this to us, Pastor. Okay. Well, uh, we have what I like to refer to in chapter 18 as the great cook-off on Mount Carmel. And <laughs> as, as this event is taking place, we see Elijah standing firmly and bravely in the presence of a crowd where he is filling the office and function of God's prophet publicly, and there the Holy Spirit drives away and removes from him the the fear of a threat. And so they have the contest, and then after God sends the fire and eats up that sacrifice and the water and the stones and all the stuff around it, Elijah carries out the agreement that they will now worship the true God by destroying the prophets of the false god and the false goddesses that Ahab, and in particular Jezebel, have introduced. Knowing that Jezebel is the one that introduces these uh, prophets of Asherah and, and is the big moving force behind prophets of Baal, she sees this as a political threat as well as a religious threat. And keeping in mind that politics and religion always need to be talked about, even though Satan wants to pass around this lie, the two things you should never talk about are politics and religion. <laughs> who, is it who is it that doesn't want you talking about things that need to have the, the light of truth shined on them? Certainly not mm-hmm. God. So, mm-hmm. you know, every once in a while the world really tells us what we should be paying attention to, even though it doesn't want to. Um, right. And and so what, what happens then is Ahab and Elijah both end up back in town, so to speak, and then Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah saying, I'm going to get you. And in private, where he is not being the public voice of God, he deals with his own sinful insecurities, as do you and I. And when he becomes frightened, he hits the road. He takes his servant with him, by the way. He doesn't go alone, but he does leave. Now, who is the servant? Why does he take him? Because he doesn't want him to be killed either, most likely. So in in one sense... We see Elijah still being concerned for the good of the servants of God because he takes a servant with him. Hmm. And at the same time, he's a sinful human being, and his fear prompts him to act in a way that we would say faith would call us not to act in. And that's true for you and me, too. Fear often causes us to act in sinful or foolish ways. Whatever that fear might be, fear drives us. But we recall the, the scripture that says, There is something that casts out fear, Mm. and it's not knowing all the words of the Bible or doing miracles in God's name. What casts out fear is perfect love. And because he's a sinner, as I am a sinner and you are a sinner, Elijah has love for God, and God's love for him is perfect, but Elijah still stumbles with his love toward God, as do you and I. Mm. And so in in fear and in... uh, concern to preserve his life he runs away and as he does this he gets away from what he perceives as the threat we're told he went all the way down to Beersheba 
the southern end of the territory of Judah, which, by the way, is a place where a well existed, but also a treaty had been made between Abraham and, and the ruler of Egypt. Uh, and this, this well and this treaty was, no harm will come here. We will not deceive one another, and we will not harm. So he goes to the, the southern end of the land of, of Judah, the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, still ruled by the, the family of David. And at the end of the territory of Judah, he stops, leaves his servant, and enters the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is where Jesus goes to be tempted by Satan. Yeah. And here's, here's the connection then that draws us to look at finding Jesus in this story about Elijah. When he runs away, he goes to the desolate place where there is one broom tree. It's not a green pasture where the good shepherd is going to have him lay down by quiet waters. It's a desolate place where there is nothing. And there where there is nothing, he cries out to God saying, Now, Yahweh, take away my life. And what does he admit about himself? I am no better than my father's. Did I do miraculous things? Did you use me as a witness to the nation? Did I bring about the public proclamation that you are greater than Baal and Ashtoreth? Absolutely. Does that make me better than anyone else? No, it doesn't. And so for you and me, we have this same message from God. We can do wonderful things by the power of God. We proclaim the love and truth of Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't make us any better than anyone else. And the need to recognize our dependence on God is part of what's going on in this very first portion. Elijah runs away to where he thinks God will talk to him. Now, that's, it's one of those two-edged swords or double-pronged issues. He runs away because he's afraid, but he runs to where he thinks God, God's going to be. And where does he know God has showed up before? Talking right. with Moses on Mount Horeb. So he's going to where God shows up. Oh, my goodness. This is great. You're you're on fire today, Pastor Tice. I mean, you should we should go to New Jersey more often. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, this is just all in the words. You just got to follow the words. <laughs> I love it. I love it because it's such a, a a thorough uh, look at what we have. Is is because I I didn't even think about this. First of all, that he went to Beersheba. And he went there and brought his servant. I guess I hadn't really noticed that. I always noticed that he left him there. And I'm always wondering, why did he leave him there? But really to see that grace that Elijah has to still work with servants, even though he's afraid, even for his own life, he's in despair. And it doesn't make any sense to us that he would be in despair. But then we forget that Elijah's like you and I, like you said so well, that he's a weak person. He's a person that needs the, the grace of the Lord to do anything. And for all of us, we could see um, God move mountains and we would still be tired the next day. Why? Because we're human beings. And no matter how right. much great things happen, we still would be wore down. So he goes to the place where he knows he thinks he can find his peace, as you said, um, find his strength. And he comes there and admits, I'm no better than anyone else, which reminds me of the hymn, Chief of Sinners, though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me. Now, Pastor, we do have a question that came in, sure. and I think is a good one, and it also brings me to Ahab a little bit, is the question from our listener is, why wasn't Jezebel at the showdown in Mount Carmel? Any insight or thoughts on that? Well, I would I would say initially my, my response to that is Ahab was the public face of authority, and mm -hmm. Jezebel is definitely a power behind the scenes, but 
keep in mind that she doesn't want to be seen. She's a foreigner and she can't afford to be seen as attempting to manipulate the country into which she's been brought by her husband, the daughter of a foreign king, without risking the appearance of a foreign country trying to take over the 10 northern tribes now called Israel. And so she has to work in concert with Ahab. But if she does too much stuff, I mean, you know, she's the one that brought in the false prophets, mm-hmm. the poles and all those. But if she shows that as being, hey, these are these are foreign things I introduced, suddenly she's not going to have the people on her side anyway. So there's always the politics behind some of this stuff going on. And mm-hmm. in a very real sense, I believe personally that this is God saying the spiritual responsibility still lies with Ahab the king. Therefore, he must account for what's going on, and that's why Elijah challenges him, even though Jezebel has been the primary source of bringing in the false prophets. Ahab has tolerated, allowed it as part of a political um, marriage that was made with, with Jezebel because she's the daughter of a ruling neighbor king. Now we're dealing with the public image issue, and so Jezebel... Jezebel has no problem being blunt with Elijah, but she can't afford to do it with the whole nation because it won't look right. And again, it's my personal understanding. Mm-hmm. Politically, you you don't risk being embarrassed if you're the foreigner brought in from out of town. That's a great insight. That, that was something that I, I read something along those lines as well. And it, it's interesting because she's kind of a swindler behind the scenes. You know, she's brought in, they get married. And, and Scripture mm-hmm. definitely shows that she's the one working as like a puppet master behind the scenes, making things happen to the point where Elijah, very strong in the Lord, feels the the weight of everything um, that that is happening around him, which we all, I mean, when I first read this, I'm like, what is going on? I mean, he just saw the, all this great stuff happen. He saw the fireworks. He, the, it even says the hand of the Lord was upon him, and yet he falls in weakness. But there's also that realization, as I said before, that he is a human being just like you and me. So any reflections on that, that for us, uh, let me give you an example, Pastor, and I want to hear what you have to think. Is There's Sundays where you have a great Sunday. Everything is going amazing. And you go home and you're like, I did something today. Yeah, I'm just going to admit that there's pastors can be selfish in this. And we feel great. And we'll say, mm-hmm. the Lord did this, all this. But then we have a Sunday where not as many people, everyone's out in Minnesota, everyone's out at the lake, and the singing wasn't yeah. great, and your sermon wasn't great. And you leave kind of downtrodden. And you're kind of, wait a second, you're in a great place. How could you feel bad about this? What does this tell us about ourselves and about, about the church and what we need? Well, it, it's, it's a constant challenge that I face, that you face. Pastors will face this, but all Christians face this, that we tend to evaluate things based on our assessment of our performance. Yeah. And yeah. our performance is measured by certain things like number of people present, how well we thought we spoke, or how many people made comments after the service, again, to pastors about what's going on. And and as I repeatedly tell people, because, again, I know it to be true, when they say something about the sermon, I will always tell them, this is the Word of God and the Spirit of God at work. I am simply a spokesman. And and the the struggle we all face, if we try to base it on our performance, and now we're talking about a, a, a broader theological concept that Luther gets into in his 
uh, his commentary on the Galatians, but it's what we call a civic righteousness or righteousness toward men, and then spiritual righteousness or righteousness toward God. We tend to mix the two up way too easily. Mm. I was doing a great job, therefore God must approve of me today. Or it didn't go as well today, therefore God must not be with me. And none of those are based on the Word of God. They're based on my assessment of the situation. And so the, the solution for all of us is always to go back to what God has promised, go back to what God has said. Or as I like to tell people, it's in the book. You don't have to make it up. <laughs> and and what, we, what we find in the book is that we are Christ's members of his body, and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We are a righteous holy people, because God says so. See what kind of love the Father has given us, First John 3, that we should be called children of God. And then the very next phrase is... And so we are. We are. Yeah. God said it, it's true. And therefore, <laughs> we go back to finding our strength and power in the Word of God. Some days I'll perform poorly because I'm a sinful, broken human being, and God gets none of the blame. Some days everything goes wonderfully, and I do things that I believe to be great, and God gets the credit because he made me, he gifted me, he prepared me, and he gave me the Holy Spirit so that I could say his word. So God gets all the credit all the time. So when things go great, God gets the credit. When things go wrong, I get the blame, but God still loves me, and Mm -hmm. I'm still God's child. And this is our ongoing challenge, to find our identity in what God says about us. I am baptized, is how Luther put it. I have been buried with Christ. I have been raised to a new life. This is the key. It's about what God says to me, not about what I say about me. Wow, this this is absolutely wonderful. So much grace, um, so much uh, love that you said, and so we are um, is a very great statement, a repeating of this fact of who we are. And we see that with Elijah. That, that he is weak, he is broken, um, he comes to the Lord, and I would call it a, a prayer of lament, and sometimes sometimes go to bed with the same prayer. Lord, you know what? I am no better than anybody else. And it's a faith statement. At the same time, it's a showing of weakness, which is who we are as God's people. So I want to continue on here, Pastor, because we only have a few minutes until our break, and I want to get to the next part, which then points us away from Elijah, and points us back to the mm-hmm. Lord. Five through eight. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And when in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. So in weakness, the Lord comes to him. And what does he do? He feeds him. He says, here, get up. I have something for you. I provide what you need. Arise and eat. And there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Okay, who baked it? He's under this lone broom tree out in the wilderness. Who baked it? Who put the True. jar of water there? See, God physically provided. And keep in mind, God physically provided a baked cake and a jar of water where there are no people. So by his miraculous work, the God of creation provides freshly baked bread, 
jar of water right there where Elijah needs it. The angel of the Lord is the agency, if you will. And he gets up and he eats. And then he lays down and sleeps again. And the angel comes back a second time, touched him, said, get up and eat. And so he rose and ate and drank. And the thing that jumped into my mind as I was reading this, of course, is what Satan says when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted. Right. You can make your own bread. God doesn't need to feed you. You're God. Feed yourself. And in that moment, we see the contrast between who Jesus is and who we are. Elijah could not produce food for himself there. God does it. Jesus could produce food for himself and humbles himself and doesn't do it so that he can bear our weight and our sin. Elijah needs God to carry him for 40 days and 40 nights on the food. Jesus has gone 40 days and 40 nights without food, and he still lets God carry him. And so this is, again, for you and me, this assurance that God will meet our need when he chooses and as he chooses, but he will meet it. And then he went, and on the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights, Mm. Now, just so you know, it doesn't take 40 days and 40 nights to walk from Beersheba down to Mount Horeb. That's not a 40-day trip. Sure. So, so what God is also doing is he's using this number 40 to teach us that God supplies for his people for the full duration of the trip, no matter how long it might take. And, you know, you think about the people of Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. It does not take 40 years to get from here to there, but God was... <laughs> testing them and removing those who had rebelled against him. Now, right. here comes Elijah running away in fear, and God says, I'll let you wander around for 40 days, just so you know I do take care of you, just so you know that I'm with you. So for for a period of, you know, oh, maybe 40 months, we'll have a, a coronavirus problem, you know, and then God will say, I'm with you. What's the problem? What are you worried about? Right. I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. But, you know, it may not take that long for coronavirus issues to be resolved, but if it's 40 months, what's the point? God's with us. Mm. Whether things look like he is or don't look like he is, whether we hear rumbling saying it's terrible, you're going to die. And by the way, I'm going to die. Unless, of course, Jesus comes back first, in which case, okay, then I don't die. But mm-hmm. in the meantime, God's promised he's with us. And he'll take us in the strength of the food, the real bread that came down from heaven, Jesus Christ. He will take us in the strength of that food all the way to where he meets us. And so we are strengthened by what God provides in Jesus Christ for you and for me and what what the word of God is, true bread bread to eat, true drink for us. That which which you and I can't afford to buy at any price. Now I'm jumping to another prophet, but that's another story. (laughs) You are. And I tell you what, there's so many connections here, which I never thought about when it comes to Christ. Um, The way that the Lord provided for Elijah with physical things that's all throughout here. And I want to touch on that on our other side of the break. Right now, when you take our break, we are studying 1 Kings chapter 19 with Pastor Stephen Tice, and we will be right back. gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 
That's from the Bible's book of Proverbs. Dr. Michael Ziegler says speaking the truth in love often requires both, and wisdom is knowing when and what to speak. Hear Dr. Ziegler's message this week on The Lutheran Hour. Sundays at 1230 and 5 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. This week on Issues Etc., Natural Law with Ryan Anderson, Infant Baptism with Chris Rosebro, Dr. Anthony Esselin on Western Civilization, Transgenderism with Dr. Beverly Yonke, and The Resurrection of Christ with Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Welcome back. We are studying 1 Kings chapter 19 with Pastor Stephen Tice. And the connections we are making are everywhere, mainly because God made them first. He made this be part of the Holy Scriptures and points us to so many themes. And Pastor, I want to highlight a few things that you've really hit home that connects to another thing and another thing and, and keeps on connecting because it all points us to Jesus. First of all, that here's Elijah out of nowhere receives this bread um, that has been baked, as you said, and the water that was provided. We can't help but think about the wilderness of the Israelites when manna came down from heaven and the water that, that the Lord provided as well. We see this with Elijah. He goes by the river and the ravens come and feed him. And then you have the widow um, that is there and, and he says, bake me a cake. And she bakes a cake and that, that from that oil and flour continues to flow from that for the sake of her sustenance. And so it seems like that there is there is a God who continually provides for his people, not in um, uh, a huge mansion, not in a millions and millions of dollars type of way, but provides and points us continually back to himself. These are connections that I had never made. Then you connect it back to Jesus when he is there um, in the wilderness and says, you don't need to do this. Uh, uh, just just make that and, and your, your trust will be in me, basically. And, and Jesus doesn't do that. And shows us all these connections. So I'm trying to I'm trying to put all this together. Can you put all that stuff I just mentioned together? And how does this how does this relate for us today? Well, I think what you're getting at is that throughout the Old Testament scriptures written for our instruction, we see again and again that in a place where it doesn't look like there's any rescue, God constantly provides mm. what's needed. He's meeting the needs of his people when they can't do it themselves. And that's what salvation is. That is Jesus Christ, God providing for us in a desperate situation where it looks like there's no way out, what we cannot provide for ourselves. The true bread that came down from heaven, born in the city of bread, laid in a feed box when he was born. I mean, the, the, the repeating image of God feeding us abundantly. And what's the celebration in heaven compared to? 
a king who gave a banquet for his son being married. And Christ and his bride, the church, bring a celebration where God feeds us abundantly. And he feeds us with what we need, not just for this body, but for eternal life. And not only that, he's promised he's going to take these bodies and move them out of the corruptible category, move them into the category of unable to die. He's going to bless us with a permanent gifting of all that we need to support this body and life. And in Jesus Christ, that's already guaranteed us. And Jesus himself says to his disciples, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. If you have the bread in your hand, life's already yours. And so we see this promise wrapped up in Elijah's gifting from God. And Elijah himself has known it and lived it just as you and I have. Again and again, God forgives our sins. Again and again, God provides us with his supper. We come to his house. He puts his name upon us. He feeds us at his table. We are considered not servants any longer, although we certainly are God's servants. Jesus calls us friends. And then he also identifies you and me as brothers, as Hebrews reminds us. Not ashamed to call us brothers. We are all the family of God, the children of God. And God does it to us. We never do it. We never grab God. God reaches out and pulls us in and holds us. And so Elijah is going to a place where God's going to reach out and pull him in and hold him temporarily on Mount Horeb. And then subsequently in chapter 19 and 20, where, you know, he's on the way then to, by the way, he's going back home, if you will. He's going across the Jordan, back to where he comes yep. from. Yep, that's right. The Tishbite. Yeah. God, God that's says, right. Is there a balm in Gilead? <laughs> you know, now you now you suddenly got to ask, where's Gilead? Guess what? It's where Elijah comes from. That's right. That's Is true. there no bomb oh in Gilead? Okay. See, geography oh, matters God. in Scripture, but it you does. and I are so separated from the geography, it's hard for us sometimes to make these connections. Mount Horeb is the place where Elijah talks to God, having to hide his face. And in just a little bit, we'll get to that one. And Moses talks to God, having to hide his face. And then we have Mount of Transfiguration. We can talk about that oh. while we move a little further on. Oh, my goodness. The connections just keep flowing. One of the fascinating ones for me was, and this is where, like you said, the shining uh, had to hide his face. Well, Exodus 34 is where Moses received the word to put on small tablets. God renewed the covenant with Moses, and he was on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, for 40 days and 40 nights. This is Exodus 34. And he goes down, right? And he has the shining face yeah. and all this stuff. The connections are absolutely everywhere. And I love how you said it of the uh, the geography matters and how often, boy, we need to dig deeper into the geography. I know I do because it tells us so much and the importance of all of that. But we're making so many connections. We probably need to move forward a little bit. But do you have any last thoughts on the first eight verses, Pastor? Well, just again, that Elijah thinks he's running away. But he is running to God. Yeah, and this right. is key for us, <laughs> that we need to keep running so to God. And what's in the world can't solve the problems we all really have. But God can and God does. Right. He thought he was going to a place where he would find peace. But his peace, as you said so well before too, Pastor, comes from his identity with the Lord. And that is exactly what the Lord does. And he continues here. Let's read the next three verses, uh, 9 through 12, four verses, as we hear the, the Lord do even more for Elijah. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Now, I want to get to the, um, the physical things, the wind, the earthquake, the fire, the whisper. But first of all, I want to take one step back and to talk about this. One of the other reasons why Elijah was downtrodden is you would think after everything happened, with Baal and Asher and everything, that the whole country, the whole land would be converted. Everything would change on a dime. Everything would be just about perfect. And even after all that, his life is threatened. And even here, he says, the people have forsaken the covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I am left to take it away. What is going on? And, and that's a reminder for us of we can look around and say, is this even working? Is, is the word of God even there? Are people even, do they even care? Blah, 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 blah. And it makes you realize that what was happening then also happens in our lives as well. Any thoughts on that before we get to uh, the Lord um, and his presence here? Well, I think uh, one, of the, one of the key thoughts here is one that's tied into what we just read this past week uh, for the first Sunday after, Pen- after Ascension in Acts chapter 1. When the apostles come back to Jerusalem and they're in the upper room, and they're going to pick a successor for Judas. We're told there are 120 Mm. people in the room. The resurrection has occurred in Jerusalem, following the resurrection, after three and a half years of preaching, teaching, miracles, raising the dead. There are 120 followers of Jesus in that city. Mm. Mm -hmm. Statistically speaking, we would call Jesus' ministry pitiful failure. Right. As human beings, we would analyze it and say he blew it. He accomplished virtually nothing. But he accomplished everything the Father sent him to accomplish. And that's the key. Elijah is trying to say, I should have been able, and this is me putting words in Isaiah in mm-hmm. Elijah's mouth, which is hard because Elijah still has a mouth. Okay? <laughs> okay. Dead, dead serious. He still has a mouth. And, and in the process, Elijah <laughs> said, <true. laughs> I didn't feed because the numbers don't show it. And this is where God's message comes back to you and me again. Success is not the calling I gave you. Not human standards shall be used, but I look at the heart. Not as a man judges. How does the Lord promise that the one who sits on the throne of David forever will judge his people? With righteousness. And, and the question is, Where do we find the righteousness of God? We don't find it in our actions. And Elijah, even though being a prophet of God, serving God, still is using the wrong standard of measurement. And that's why he's frustrated. I can understand it, because personally as a pastor, I've had similar experiences where I thought to myself, well, we did this, we did that, and look at how many people didn't participate. And it's so easy to focus on the visible standard. Now, speaking as a pastor with several more years experience than you have, one sure. of the things I do know is 
I'm planting seeds that will bear fruit, and that fruit may show up after I'm gone 20, 30 years down the road, and I'll never know it. But it's not my fruit. It's not for me. It's God's fruit. This is the fruit of the Spirit, and it will endure forever. And this is what Jesus says you and I as, as pastors, the church is called to do. It's to keep working with the Word of God so that the Holy Spirit will give the growth and produce the seed in the fruit that will bring a new generation of believers. And as long as we remember that the Word does its work as we use it, then we can find comfort in that. And what we see in Elijah is, I think, somewhat we see in Jonah, he believed the Word of God would work. He believed God's Word would accomplish its purpose, and then he doesn't see it. And his frustration is not that it didn't happen, is that he knows the Word can do it, and it isn't happening. Hmm. And as Christians, Which, you and I will struggle with that too. I was going to say we have the same; they have the same issue. And so, in yeah. so once again, as you said so well, the Lord constantly provides for what we need. And what does He need here? The Word of the Lord came to Him again. And then He says all this lament. He's lamenting in a wonderful way, something that God allows us to do. And in verse eleven. He says, go out and stand before the mount before the Lord. And then he comes, then all of a sudden there's wind, earthquake, fire, and a whisper. He says the wind, Mm -hmm. earthquake, and fire, that the Lord is not in that. I tried to research this, Pastor. You obviously know a lot lot about Scripture. What is going on here? Wind, earthquake, fire, but the Lord is not in it. What is he trying to do? Well, he's he's showing the, the way in which God is not the flashy thing. It's the subtle thing. And if you go all the way back through the account of the flood, where God sends the rain, after which there may have been some lightning and windstorm because he had to dry the ground up, this this earthquake, this devastation, all of this is tied to a, a literally acts of judgment. The wind, the earthquake, the fire are never acts of rescue in themselves. They're acts of judgment on some sinful behavior which God will use to rescue his people. But those things are never the rescue themselves. They are the judgment on the opponents of God that result in rescue for the people of God. We don't meet God in judgment. We meet God in his still, small voice. And when that happens, you know, if you think about it, wind strong enough to rip rocks off the side of a mountain. I mean, that's mm. literally what it says here. The wind ripped mm-hmm. rocks off the mountain. Wow. That is a powerful wind. And you get in that wind, you're in trouble. You get in the middle of a fire, you're in trouble. But again, later we find out that Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael stand in the fire saying, if our God wants to save us, he will, and if he doesn't want to save us, he won't. We don't care. It's a fire. Turn up the heat. <laughs> because you see, the God who sent fire down from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. Mm-hmm saves through fire as well by purifying and and destroying sin and brings us out of this fire into a new righteousness. First Peter, your faith, though more precious than gold, which is refined by fire, is going to be refined by trial. And here we have Elijah's faith being refined by a trial. And God says, you didn't fail, and I didn't fail. You just expected the wrong result. Let me show you a better one. And we see that at the end of the chapter. And as he speaks, there's a way of us misinterpreting this. Okay, verse 12. At the very end, 
After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Now, I've heard this used <laughs> in a way of that's that little small voice inside of you that you just have to listen to, the low whisper. How is that misinterpreted and can be misunderstood for the Christian? Like, okay, he's not on fire, he's not an earthquake, he's not on that, but the little low whisper, we just need to be better at listening to the low whisper. How is that a misrepresentation of this verse? Well, it's total misrepresentation in that the still small voice required Elijah to stop and focus on what God was literally saying, rather than the thing that was distracting his attention. Too much commotion keeps you from hearing. What does God say? Be still and know that I am God. Hmm. Sit. Stop moving. Stop making noise. Listen. Be still and have intimate knowledge that I am God. And we get that through meditating on the Word of God, not on meditating on our own ideas. The still small voice inside my head has to be in agreement with the Word of God to be right. And if it's not in agreement with the Word of God, I have to ignore it and go with the Word of God. And, and part of what's going on here is that God is saying to Elijah, listen to what you can't hear in the commotion of the world around you. Get away from the commotion. And that's part of what's going on for Elijah. He's gotten away from all the commotion. He is the only one on the mountain mm-hmm. with God, so that he is able, by God's arrangement, to completely block out the distraction of the world around him, which is not to say we ignore the world around us. We need to be in it, but not of it, as Jesus says. And for Elijah, that meant to be in it, but not of it. He had to ignore completely the political manifestations of power, the physical manifestations of power, and listen directly to the spiritual manifestation of truth, which is in the Word of God. And the Word of the Lord came to him and said, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And in Scripture, we find this rolling over in John's Gospel of the Word becoming flesh. Far too often, we as scholars or as Christians hearing the phrase, the Word of the Lord came, we think of it, the message came. Isn't that what it says? Hmm. Mm -hmm. The Word came to him. And we have to be careful we don't take out the actual message that's there, because the Word is the Word that became flesh. So God came to him with a message. Not a message came to him, but God came to him. And so now God is coming to him. And God's promise to come to us, always in his word. Each and every time in his word, he will come to us. He said so. And by the way, I'm not making that up. It's in the book. (laughs) It's in the book. So let's continue in that book, verses 13 to 18. And when Elijah heard it, He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there was a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken the covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael and be the king over Israel. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, and you shall anoint to be a prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. 
and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah does a little bit of repeating here. One question from our guest, one of our listeners today, Mm -hmm. is he says, and I, even I only, am left. And he had a, a good question about the prophets that were in the cave you know how it talked about Obadiah saved the prophets in the cave. Right. Yeah. There's a hundred of them, right. and he says he's the only one left. How? Any way we can reconcile that? Perhaps you could if if we go back and remember that Obadiah hid them in a cave, and Elijah wasn't hiding in a cave. That's um, true. Yeah. Elijah was Elijah was standing up publicly confronting the false prophets, the idolatry, rebuking the king, and and certainly rebuking Queen Jezebel in a public format. I mean, like I said, he, he had a, a big cook-off. It was a public event up on top of Mount Carmel. It wasn't, it wasn't in secret. There was no way he could hide and say, oh, it wasn't me. I wasn't doing that. He was up there doing it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that's what he means. Or it could just be the hyperbole of many of us when we're wrapped up in our own emotions saying, it's all me, and I'm the only one. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. So, so he continues on. He has another lament before the Lord. And then the Lord speaks to him and tells him to go to Damascus and do these various things. What is he telling him to do? Or what, what does this mean that he's telling them to do these um, individual actions? Well, I think it's important to, to, to start off with the question God asks him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Have I called ah, okay. you to be a mountain prophet in Horeb? No. So, A, you're in the wrong place. And B, you came here because you thought something wasn't working. It's working just fine. Now I'm going to give you more specific directions. You need to provide for your replacement. But you're also providing a replacement for Ahab because I'm going to get rid of him. And you're going to provide a foreign power that I will use to punish the Israelites for their idolatry, which, by the way, God has told them over and over again through all the prophets, that when they follow false gods, he's going to bring in foreigners to crush them. I mean, it's plain and simple. Moses starts off with this me- message back in the wilderness. And when you follow false gods, the Lord will bring in from you the foreigner who shall punish you. I mean, it's again and again. God uses other nations to bring discipline and punishment upon the people of Israel because they abandoned the covenant. And so he's specifically arranging with Elijah who that is. So Elijah goes and appoints the next successor who will rule in Syria. And then the one who will rule in Samaria, which is, you know, the capital city of the northern ten tribes. And then the one who will replace him as prophet. And so it's a line of succession politically for the punishment of the false worship going on in the northern kingdom. But it's also a line of succession for the continued proclamation of God's truth and forgiveness for all who repent. So we see both here, the the right hand of God and the left hand of God, the foreign work and the familiar work, using the government as his servant to accomplish his purpose. But the primary power and focus lies in Elisha, the servant who brings the word of God. And the Lord continues to operate this way in the world today. It's a lot harder for us to see. But, and, you know, this is a personal interpretation from me as an individual. This is not God's revealed truth. So don't let anybody say God said so. You look at the world around us today, you look at our nation, where for, uh, you know, pushing 50 years now, we've been saying it's okay to sacrifice children to the wants and desires of the people. 
Um, if, if you decide the child is un, unwanted, you may dispose of it at, at your leisure. That's what our government has endorsed. And as a, as a nation, we have not rejected that position. Now, some of us certainly have opposed it and spoken out against it, but as a nation, we haven't rejected it. And now God has allowed foreign powers to oppress us and to take away some of our influence and control. And there are those who are saying that in a matter of years, they may in fact take over control of, of the world's economy and will be suppressed even further. That could just be God at work saying, you're getting what you asked for. Why are you complaining? Now, see, that's not a popular way to talk because people don't want to think that God's involved in international politics, because you can't talk about politics or religion, can you? <laughs> you As we look at... I do get back to what I started with. You did. You're doing. You're doing. You're doing great, Pastor. As uh, Pastor Nobil Nuer said, uh, this is a call to repentance uh, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So 19 through 21, we got to finish because Elijah is a main figure that we have to include today. So 19 till the end. All right. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I, what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So it's kind of a little bit strange, but probably cultural uh, situation that we need to understand. But definitely Elijah mm -hmm. says, you will be the next guy. But he kind of walks by and puts a cloak on him and keeps walking by. Any insights to this uh, cultural uniqueness? Well, part of what's going on is, is it, it's a public call. Because if you, if you read carefully, he is plowing along with the other servants of his father's household with the 12th tractor. This is a wealthy farming family. They have 12 right. tractors in the field at one time. I mean, we miss this most of the time because we pay no attention. A, mm. there were 12 tractors. B, there were 12 tractors. Ah, so the 12th sure. one is the one that's set aside for God's purpose. And the guy plowing with the 12th team of oxen is the one God says, I call you to serve in my house for my people. Leave your father's house and come serve me. And Elisha's response, as soon as the, the mantle or cloak of the prophet, everybody knows who this prophet is, is thrown over him, is, hey, hey, I, I still have family obligations. And the response that he gets from Elijah is, your family obligations haven't been destroyed, but you have a new status. Fulfill your family obligations. And then he follows him. And what does Elisha say? Elisha says, let me fulfill my obligation to my parents, and I will follow. And then he does just that. And he takes the yoke of oxen and the, and the, the wood from the yoke and the plow that he's using, and he literally destroys it. There's no turning back. He who sets his hand to the plow and then turns back is unfit. Here's one who destroys the plow, destroys the oxen, has a sacrificial celebration. I'm entering public ministry. Let's rejoice. I mean, literally, it's what it says he does here, that he mm -hmm. shares the meal with the rest of the guys in the family and the working servants. I mean, it takes a couple hours to, to slaughter oxen and, and then cook them. So it's not like, boom, he gets up and leaves right away. They actually sure. have a farewell party. 
and he goes with him. What struck me was the thing that Jesus deals with in the New Testament when he says, you know, you, you've taken things in your family's wealth and you've dedicated them to service of God. And then you say, we can't take care of our parents because these things are korban. Right. Exactly contradicting what they did in their day. And he's probably pulling on this story of Elisha from the Old Testament. And if anybody's really familiar with it, the one statement that's clearly made here is Elisha committed himself to serving God, but he still met the obligation to his family. You and I are not freed from the Ten Commandments just because we have a particular calling in life. This is one that you know, I'm going to pick on you for just a little bit. No, you, have, you have 20 seconds, Pastor. You have 20 seconds. No problem. I can do it. <laughs> All pastors are still obligated to keep the commandment that says, take rest on the Sabbath day, which means one day out of seven pastors should have a day off, because otherwise everybody in the church should be able to pick which of the Ten Commandments they're going to ignore. Ah, Pastor Stephen Tice, Vacancy Pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in New Wells, Missouri, bringing us God's strong word from 1 Kings chapter 19. Pastor Tice, thank you for being our guest. You're welcome, and our rest is in Jesus, and that's the good news. Saints of our Lord, Elijah was weak. The Lord fed him. Elijah needed direction. The Lord gave him direction. The Lord, Elijah needed help, and the Lord brought Elisha. We are weak, needing direction, and the Lord helps us in all of those things, especially in Christ. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.